Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. If this is your first episode joining us, welcome. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first four episodes because there is so much interesting information we have shared. But we are delving into a case that happened 60 years ago. Three women were brutally murdered at the Star of Rock State Park. And my client, Chester Weger, was convicted and served over 60 years in prison. Today, we're going to be talking about the concept of premeditation. Were these murders premeditated? We've got a lot to talk about. Let's begin. In the days following the murders, law enforcement seemed to gravitate towards the belief that only a depraved lunatic could have committed such a heinous and depraved crime. Newspapers ran stories hypothesizing that the murders must surely be the work of an escaped mental patient, because who else but a madman would have reason to harm three lovely church-going ladies with no enemies? But did these women truly have no enemies? How much do we really know about the motive for the murders? When Chester Weger was ultimately charged with the crimes, his supposed motive was robbery, and yet curiously, nothing was missing from the victims. Random robberies don't typically result in the complete and utter destruction of the faces of the victims and their bodies being dragged to a cave and displayed like grotesque snow angels. In today's episode, we explore the clues left behind at the crime scene that suggest that someone may have been out to get one of these women. And perhaps we correct the notion that nothing was taken because we know that at least in the case of Frances Murphy, something was taken, her fingertip. Was it some sort of sick souvenir? Or is that missing fingertip evidence of premeditation? Whitney, before we launch into this new episode, I wanted to thank all the people that have been listening. It's been an overwhelming response we've gotten of listeners and also people reaching out to us on our website. And in particular, I want to thank those people out there who have noted that I have been mispronouncing the name of Marseilles. It's not the fancy French name I was using. My apologies. It is Marseilles, <laughs> okay? And I'm so glad people reached out to note that to me, duly noted and corrected. All right, let's get into it. Whitney, I want to get into, with this episode, the concept of multiple offenders in premeditation. Last episode, we talked about suspects. We talked about Gerald Nemke, George Spiros, clearly two guys who are at the top of the list. But I want to make my case today for why I think premeditation makes the most sense. Do you have a seatbelt fastened? Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. I, I want to hear this. All right. Let me make my, my kind of my closing argument to you on these points. Let's start out with multiple offenders. This is an easy one in my mind. I mean, you've got three victims. We know that. And they're hauled up into a cave. We've talked about this, how hard it is logistically for one person to do that and the time it would take. But let's also talk about this. We've talked about hairs, two types of hairs found on the victims, light-colored hair and dark-colored hair. We've already talked about that. 
And then we've talked about how the police thought there were multiple, you know, murder weapons. I'm going to discuss that more. Log, camera, binoculars. I mean, that makes no sense with one random person. Oh, I'm going to bash somebody with a log. Now I'm going to pick up the camera. Now I'm going to pick up the binoculars. Like, when I combine all those factors right there, that to me speaks pretty persuasively to a multiple offender scenario. Okay, so so I I totally hear you on multiple offender. Now, how how do multiple people premeditate a crime? And nobody talks about it for all these years. Well, all right, let's let's get into premeditation because I mean, to me, we've we've set the foundation for multiple offenders. I just feel like with three victims restraining these women and, and everything about it, that just makes sense. So let's let's talk about my case for premeditation. Let's first talk about the crime scene. It is displayed. In my opinion, it is staged. I mean, the women are spread out like snow angels. Literally, their legs spread out like snow angels. Their clothing is pulled down from the waist. But they're not sexually assaulted. It is meant to look like a sexual assault. That, to me, is clearly an attempt to make the crime scene look like something it is not. It is a staged crime scene, in my opinion. And so that is just inconsistent with the random act of rage. Oh, Chester Weger, it's a botched robbery. Oh, my God. Like, that's just not consistent at all with a random act of rage it is, to me, an intentional stage crime scene to throw people off, to make it look like something it's not. So talk to me about the staging. So to walk me through the staging and tell me what you think is premeditated as opposed to being just a, a, an act of rage. Well, what's premeditated is just the fact that there is a staging, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if there's a random act of rage and, and somebody, for whatever reason, decides to just bludgeon these ladies— there's no need to drag them into a cave. There's no need to spread them out, spread eagle, spread their legs apart, pull their clothes down. Why? I mean, you're only doing that if it was a sexual attack and they were raped. Okay, I get it. But, but if there's no evidence of sexual assault, which there wasn't, it just makes no sense for that even to be a part two to me. So I have a question. So I want to distinguish for people that might be confused by this, um, the difference between our use of the term sexual assault and then and then physical assault on Mrs. Murphy because we know that um, when we say that the women weren't sexually assaulted, we mean there was there was no semen, there was no sign of sexual trauma to the women. Right. But Mrs. Murphy had bruising. I'm going to get into that. Okay. Okay. So that's that. what so, I yeah. that's what I'm really curious. I'm going to get into that. So okay. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. So just you know, <laughs> I'm we're, just excited. I want to yeah, learn yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. One step at a time. So that's that's the displayed crime scene. Let's now talk about the twine. The women were tied up, and there was twine around their wrist. The twine, it's noted, had been cut. I've talked about this. That is so huge. You know, under the Chester story, the women break away. So mm -hmm. the twine would be, first of all, I don't even think they could do that. I don't think yeah. they could break the twine. The twine would be torn or ripped. It's cut with what? A knife? Scissors? Who's got a knife and scissors? The ladies? No. Uh, the killer didn't use a knife or scissors. So the twine, to me... And who brings twine, enough twine, to tie up all three victims? You know, the argument is, oh, Chester Weger carried twine. Oh, a huge spool of twine in his jacket? <laughs> Give me a break. You I, know? Always um, I always carry it in my purse. What are you talking about, Andy? <laughs> yeah. You know, and so 
that's the next part. And let me continue with that. Not only the twine, there's reports that say the women were seated when they were beaten. This is really significant. Let me read this to you. It's from a May 31st, 1960 report. We're going to post it on the website, andyhillpodcast.com. You can read it yourself. But this is what it says. It says, from the above observations, it would seem that all three of the victims were in a sitting position when the beating occurred and were probably tied together in some fashion such that the opposite arms of adjacent victims were tied together beneath their knees, thus holding them in the upright position and together, even after the victims had been struck, were unconscious and did the majority of their bleeding in this position the heads would then fall forward upon the knees and produce the bleeding pattern that is present. So what this report is saying is women are seated, their knees drawn up to their chest, their heads kind of fall forward, and that's the way the blood flows from looking at the clothing, okay? Mm -hmm. So for them to be in that fashion, that to me is more consistent with premeditation. Somebody has planned this out and thought about how they're going to do this. A random attack it just doesn't make any sense to me. Chester Weger or anybody else going to have all this twine, bring these ladies up into the cave, tie them in this elaborate way. I mean, it just, I don't know. It just, it just does not make sense to me with randomness. That seems to me being more premeditated. So I guess then my, my question is then if this is premeditated, why is this a hit? Uh, is this, who has the right. motive to do this? That's my question. I'm, I'm getting there. Let me let me <laughs> let me take my baby steps. Let me, okay. let me go through. Let me go through one more. There's also reports. I'm going to post these on the website too. The women's watches were not broken. So you might say, so what? Well, the so what is in a random attack, right? In this kind of random, let's take the Chester Weger alleged confession story. You know, it's this Jackie Chan kind of like boom, 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 boom. There's all this. There's fighting going on. There would be defensive maneuvers by the victims. The women would be putting their hands up. You know, they're, they're bludgeoned all about the head. Their hands should be used to cover their face to defend themselves from this rain of blows. And if they're wearing a wristwatch, which they were, there's no way those watches don't get hit once, twice, five times, ten times, get damaged. There's no damage to the watches. That just, to me, proves it was not this random mm -hmm. fight and attack in the canyon. It was something much different. Yeah. All right, so let me get into the meat of it right now. Here's the part that is the meat of the premeditation right now. Let me just pause and catch my breath. Okay, I'm going to talk about some things that are unique only to Mrs. Murphy. This is incredible to me. She's missing a fingertip. We already talked about that. Mrs. Murphy is missing a fingertip post-mortem. Where's the fingertip? Just a Uyghur doesn't have it. Where did it go? Who would do that? Not only that, her clothing is soiled. The autopsy says, again, another document I'm going to post on the website. There are multiple soil spots on the clothing. And here's the thing. The police knew this. And they knew there was something very, very strange about it. Because these are the questions that they asked Chester Weger. I'm going to read the questions verbatim. 
Did you take a crap on them? Chester says, no. Did you piss on them? He says, I don't know. You didn't shit on any of their clothing? I mean, they know, and this is just as Miss Murphy. You mean to tell me a random person, a random attack is going to cut off her finger and defecate and urinate on her and just her, just her. Uh, and let me continue. She's also the only one who has an injury to her vagina. The autopsy notes bruising to her vagina. And again, the police knew this. And this is the question that was asked of Chester Weger verbatim when they were questioning him. Did you kick any of them in the crotch? Okay, it is just Miss Murphy. She's got a missing fingertip. She's got soiled clothing. And she's got a vaginal injury. Just her. You cannot tell me that's just coincidence. Oh, well, that's just what the, that's what the person did to her. Really? Missing fingertips, soiled clothing, and a, and a vaginal injury just to Miss Murphy? Make the case for me why that's not something that's really, really significant, weird, and inconsistent with just randomness. I can't. I, I can't make the case for that. That is, it's so bizarre on so many levels. Let me ask you this, Andy. In all of your years, have you ever encountered another crime where, where that has been a question that police have asked, that they've asked if a no. suspect has, has no. defecated on a victim? I put in my notes, excuse my, my little range, I put WTF, question mark, question mark, question mark <laughs> yeah. on my notes. Like, seriously, yeah. like when I read that, I was like, I, I didn't know what they were talking about at the time. I was like, what? They're, what are they asking him? I mean, and, and Chester's on his break, okay? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to bludgeon these women with 100 blows. I'm going to now drag them up into a cave. I'm going to now position the bodies. And you know what? I'm going to pull my pants down. I'm going to defecate and urinate on Miss Murphy. And now I'm going to go back to work because it's a botched robbery and nothing yeah. was taken from the victims. No way. No way. I mean, that's the police knew this too. I mean, this yeah. is not me. Like Andy Hale's the only one who noticed this. Clearly, the police, by asking Chester those questions, noticed all these oddities to Mrs. Murphy. And let me take it one step further. Let's talk about this guy, Bill Jansen. Bill Jansen in 1960 was a 24-year-old recent college graduate from Michigan State in criminology. He was going to be starting law school. I don't know why they brought this guy in. I don't know who knew him, but he was brought in to be this fresh set of eyes and he spent months at Starve Rock Lodge reinvestigating the case, interviewing people, reviewing all the documents. And then he winds up issuing a 40-page report, which I would love to see. I've never seen it. I've tried to get it. I don't know anybody that's had it. But there are newspaper articles talking about things in his report. And his report is very, very telling. One of the things he says is he thinks it's a crime of revenge, okay? Chester Weger confession story is not a crime of revenge. Let me read you from a newspaper article. Again, I'm going to post this on the website. The Times, Streeter, Illinois, September 15th, 1960. Quote, I believe this crime was more a revenge crime than a sex crime, Jansen said. He said, friends, 
families and business associates who knew the victims should be questioned. And he specifically mentioned that the Moline area be the target of the investigation. Mrs. Francis Murphy's husband once served as an attorney at Moline, and Jansen suggested it should be determined if he incurred enemies in that area. Wow, are you kidding me? So Jansen's saying it's a crime of revenge, and oh, guess what? The only person he mentions is Mr. Murphy. Mm -hmm. Because you know why? He knows, and they all know, she's got these weird things that only happen to her. The missing fingertip, the soiled clothing, the vaginal injury. So can you believe in September, they know all this. It's reported. And Chester Weger is the guy they're hot to trot on. I mean, what a fraud. I just can't believe it. And let me continue with Jansen. Let me tell you what he says about the murder weapon, his report. It says, this is another newspaper article. Jansen said the women were beaten by camera, binoculars, and a tree limb, but said the murder weapon has not been found. He favored a steel bar or tire iron. What? Think about that. So we know from the nature of the injuries, and I'm going to let you address this, mm -hmm. the force, I want you to talk about the force of the trauma. Sure. Okay? He's saying a steel bar or a tire iron. Oh, there's some guy walking in the woods, taking a walk with a steel bar or a tire iron. Chester Weger doesn't, on his break with a tire iron. That, to me, is premeditation. Somebody brought that kind of an object. Maybe multiple people brought those kinds of objects. And we know from just the nature of the injuries. Talk about the trauma to these victims and the use of something like a steel bar or a tire iron, to me, makes more sense. I mean, something that I hope people uh, don't see in a way because it'll haunt your dreams are, are pictures of the crime scene because these, these women's faces were just utterly destroyed. If you read the autopsy report, you see, you know, orbital sockets broken, you know, the, uh, just the, the facial structures are completely, completely decimated. And the theory that it's a tree branch we've talked about doesn't make a lot of sense because you hit somebody with a tree branch, there should be splintering. There's not binoculars or a camera. If you hit someone enough times that in the case of like Mrs. Oding, her head, her skull is actually detached from her C1, right? So her, her first cervical vertebra, you have a disconnection between the head and the neck. If you had that happen, it should also obliterate the object that you hit it with. And I was just thinking about this, I, I inherited my grandfather's uh, 1950s and 60s camera collection. I dropped a Leica camera one day, which is a similar model to what was used or what the women were carrying. And it shattered. It, falling four feet, this camera shattered. I cannot imagine that you would hit someone multiple times and that same camera would not just absolutely break down into a million little particulate pieces. So the idea that you could inflict this kind of damage to someone's face with anything sort of shy of a tire iron doesn't make sense to me. And a tire iron or a steel pipe or something that had the durability to just maintain its physical integrity after, you know, a hundred blows, that's what it has to be. And so this, the official police narrative of it being binoculars and, and you know, a, a Leica camera and, uh, and a tree branch, 
Oh, because because uh, Harlan Warren stepped on a branch, and then he's like, "Oh, I think this is the murder weapon." Yeah, and and people have questioned that over the years because some some narratives say, "Oh, well, you know, Chester pointed it out," but we we have evidence. We have photographs of the scene where Harlan Warren wrote in his own in his own hand, "Here's where I found the tree branch." He claimed he was walking through the snow and stepped and heard a crack and looked down and saw a tree branch that had a spot of blood. And that he picked it up and went, you know, behold, this must be the murder weapon. And I mean, that is that is such poor science to me. It, it's it's Keystone Cops. It's that, Keystone that, that's, Cops. That's, stuff. that's that's laughable to me. You know, well, to follow up with you, let me talk a little bit more about this tree limb with Harlan Warren. There's a newspaper article on March 17th, 1960. It's the day after the bodies were found. Let me read it to you. It says, Warren said he was fairly positive that the tree limb, which weighs 10 pounds and has a sharp fragment on each end, was the death weapon, okay? Harlan Warren is reporting on March 17th, the next day, he has concluded the tree limb is the death weapon, which, okay, he's making that determination already. But here's a bombshell that I just came across. You know, I've said bombshell many times in this podcast because I keep coming up with bombshells. This is a week later, Whitney, March 24th in the Chicago Tribune. Let me read this part to you. I'm going to post it on the website, andyhalepodcast.com. People can read it themselves. Here we go. Another startling development in the murder inquiry is the report from the state police crime laboratory that has convinced state police that a three-foot, 10-pound tree limb found near the murder scene was not used to bludgeon the women. The blood-covered limb is so rotten in some places that it probably would have cracked under the impact had it been used to beat the women, authorities said. Are you kidding me? All right, first of all, I've never seen this report. I would have loved to have seen it. And I'm sure Chester Weger would have loved to have seen it and used it at his trial to show that his confession was false because the state knew since the first week, that the tree limb could not have been the murder weapon. This is the only article I've seen about it. It's the only piece of paper I've seen about it. And I find it absolutely stunning that there's an Illinois State Police crime lab report saying the tree limb could not have been the murder weapon in the first week. I mean, is that just incredible to you? It's incredible to me, and it it... it further baffles me as to why, if if after the first week, they knew it wasn't the murder weapon, why they chose to still run with that theory. And also why the lead detectives and state's attorney decided to shellac this tree branch and share it as a souvenir. Well, I think it's a couple things. They didn't have a murder weapon. See, like the Jansen report noted, he's saying that he favors a tire iron or a steel bar, or steel pipe. They didn't have anything. They had to run with what they had and what Harlan Warren thought initially, which is the tree limb, because there was a little bit of blood on it, you know? So it's incredible to me that they would take a confession that they coerced from Chester Weger, and he says, because they're urging him, I'm sure, to say the murder weapon is the tree limb, which they know is not the case, and it cannot be the murder weapon, you know? I mean, it just shows to me how they had such tunnel vision and how they were so focused on Chester Weger and how they got him to say something that they knew was wrong. 
Yeah. But it didn't matter because they're just trying to close the case. That's how I look at it. Well, it feels to me like, you know, I've, I've used this terminology before and, and with every sort of detail that we go over, a retro engineering of a scenario that fit the narrative and the details that they had, right? It doesn't. It doesn't matter that it, whether it was truthful or not. But let's just let's just retro engineer a scenario and a confession that kind of matches some of the details we might have. All we've heard for sixty years is, yeah, the tree limb is the murder weapon. The tree limb is the murder weapon. Yeah. The tree limb was used to kill the three women, and they got a report a week later that the tree limb cannot later. be the murder weapon because it's rotten. It would have cracked. I mean, are you kidding me? I can have a whole episode just on the tree limb. Man, oh man. I've got a few other things I want to talk about before we wrap this episode up. Let me let me move on. Following up on Jansen saying he favored, you know, a steel bar or a tire iron as the murder weapon. There are newspaper articles that talk about there being a clue. I'm looking at an April 28th, 1960 article. It says Park Killer Killing Probers Hunt Clue. And it talks about a particle of chrome metal. And it says, belief that the bit of metal might have come from the weapon the killer used to beat the women to death. And then there's another newspaper article, May 14th, that said that chrome metal was found on the overshoe of, guess who? Guess which one of the three victims? I'm going to hazard a guess that it might have been Mrs. Murphy. Absolutely right. There's chrome metal on the bottom of her shoe, which is corroboration for what Jansen is saying about the murder weapon being a steel bar or a tire iron. I think that's also incredible. And let me continue with Jansen. You know, we had talked about him saying it was a crime of revenge. There's an article where he is saying, it's a September 15th, 1960 article, where he says, quote, someone mixed up in the rackets, end of quote, may be involved. The rackets, I take to mean like racketeering, which I take to mean like some kind of a mob type thing. Mm -hmm. He's saying somebody involved in the rackets. That to me is also consistent with the things we've talked about this episode. And I think it's consistent with the missing fingertip. Yeah. I mean, the, the notion that we've got more than one assailant, the missing fingertip, a metal instrument being used on them, their hands being tied, then cut. I mean, it feels to me very much like these details sort of culminate in a natural assumption of like, this This feels very much like a mob hit, but I feel hesitant to just say that because I, you know, I don't want my imagination to run wild. But like, I mean, how else do you describe it? I mean, how else do you describe this scenario? Well, I think the missing finger, it's kind of one of two things. It's either it could be used as kind of proof like, hey, look, you know, we did the job. Or it could also be used as intimidation. Like, look at this, mm -hmm. delivering it to somebody. I mean, I don't really see another explanation for the missing fingertip in this kind of scenario where all these other factors are noted. It just, it just seems consistent to me. One more point, and we'll wrap up. George Spiros gets interviewed again in October. And I'm looking at his transcript of his interview, October 4th, 1960. And this is what he says he saw. He says, two cars, five men, and three women. I mean, let me say that again. He's saying, three women, five men, three in one car and two in the other. So although he's claiming in this interview, Stanley Tucker's one of them, he's very wishy-washy about Chester Weger. He just says, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
but this makes no sense. He's got five men in two cars. That, to me, is consistent with the premeditation. I think if there's a premeditated act to kill at least one of these women, I think you're going to need probably at least three people to kill three women. You could also have a couple getaway drivers. I mean, five makes perfect sense to me. Five is not the randomness story. Five is not just the uh, somebody walking through St. Louis Canyon. He sees two cars and five men by the three ladies. I thought that was an incredible revelation as well. You know, I guess here's my question, Andy. Let's just say that the intended victim was Mrs. Murphy. So then my question is, was this retaliation against Mrs. Murphy? Or was this a murder of Mrs. Murphy in a heinous way as retaliation against someone else who loved her? And that fingertip was a trophy or was it a warning? I don't know. Those are questions I don't know if we'll ever get answered. But I do think I have made a persuasive case for premeditation and somebody targeting her for some reason. Maybe we'll get some insight from that down the road. Maybe we won't. But I think that all the things we talked about with the missing fingertip, the soiled clothing, the vaginal injury, the nature of the weapons, I feel like it's just a compelling case for premeditation. I'm not ruling out. I could be wrong. As we discussed, Gerald Nemke is a very powerful suspect. George Spiros is too, just because the police thought he was. I think there's more to the George Spiros story considering, I mean, like I said, he's got to be the last guy they want this to be, the lodge owner's son. Absolutely. I mean, they are hoping for sure it's not him, but yet they take fibers from all his sweaters and they take hair samples from his dog because there's hairs found on the victims. Dog hairs, apparently. Yeah. So I'm not ruling him out either, but my personal opinion, I think the totality of the circumstances, premeditation to me, makes the most sense. All right, we got a lot more to get into in this podcast. We're going to get into the confession. We're going to get into the concept of false confessions. We're going to get into the trial of the century and a whole lot more. So check us out next week when we have a whole new episode dropping. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I enjoyed making my closing argument for premeditation. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. If you want even more information, please visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com, where each week we are posting new documents, photos, and newspaper articles. You can just click on the link that says read more. If you know anything about the Star of Rock murders, please email us. And if you know anyone that you think was wrongfully convicted, reach out. We would love to hear about it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis. Sound design by Studio D. Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy. And hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.